Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 177 of Life and Lessons. Today, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Nick Butter. Nick is a runner, author, speaker, and the founder of Run Weekends. Nick was the first person in history to run a marathon in every country on the planet. He's also ran around the entire perimeter of Britain and has run over a thousand marathons in total. This conversation with Nick is really special because it's a story about running, sure, but it's also about way more than that. It's about pushing yourself to your limits, about creating an unshakable mindset, about the lessons that others can teach us and what we can learn about ourselves. This episode was recorded a while ago, but I promise you this will have been worth the wait. I know that you're really going to enjoy this one. But just before then, if you haven't already, do make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening to this right now. We're back. I'm excited and I don't want you to miss what is coming in the very near future. So make sure you're subscribed and that'll make me very happy. But in the meantime, here it is. Episode number 177 of Life and Lessons with Nick Butter. So Nick Butter, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me on. Looking forward to chatting. I put up your stats on my Instagram story a few weeks ago, um, all of the things you've done in your life so far. uh, And I didn't name you. I just said, I'm really excited to chat to this person on the podcast in a few weeks time. And within about a minute, I got a reply and somebody said, that must be David Goggins. It's, It's not David Goggins, but what do you think you have in common with somebody like David Goggins? Well, I've certainly had an easier life, that's for sure. Um, and I, yeah, David Goggins is always always comes up when people talk about crazy challenges like this. Uh, I guess what I do is I put myself through suffering. Um, it's my own decision too. And, and he's done the same in various you know, forms of life. Um, so I think that's the similarities. But in many ways, we're quite different, how we approach stuff. Um, his background, the military side, the discipline side, I'm definitely more of a, just a, a normal person. Um, and I think David would appreciate that I'm calling him abnormal because he absolutely is. Um, it is, is a different, different league. And I don't, you know, I'm not trying to be humble with that. I'm, it, it's, he's truly a different league. And I, I, I'm doing stuff because it's the, the way that I've learned to live my life to give me peace, adventure, income etc um david's yeah slightly differently you say that you have an easier life than him but i guess in some ways it's similar in as much as you choose difficulty or at least to me looking inwards on your life it looks like you choose difficulty right some of those stats almost 850 marathons 89 ultras somewhere close to fifty thousand miles running a marathon in every country in the world these are huge numbers i'm sure you can appreciate but where did this all begin yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. I suppose if you, yeah, those numbers don't sound particularly easy, but my, my argument would be that the alternative of that, of not doing those things is, is harder. Uh, and I think that it takes a certain type of person. And I think there's a good, good amount of us out there in the world that, that need that kind of, um, uh, drive through challenge. Um, and yeah, those numbers you mentioned have now increased a bit. We're up to 850. That's gone to what? 
I'm on a thousand fifteen marathons now. Um, broke the thousand mark not so long ago, which was cool. Um, and yeah, we're up to nearly seventy eight thousand miles. So added a few. <laughs> it's just constantly keep going and running and running and running. So um, where did it all start? It started from I believe from when I was very young, struggling to walk. Um, so I had, if you see any videos of me when I'm walking, I have my feet completely turned in. Um, I would say 80 degrees in, you're not quite 90, but very, very, very in. And, um, my parents were kind of, you know, I can't remember this cause I was too young, but anxious to get me operated on and to, to fix my legs so I could walk normal normally. But as it happens over the years, they hesitated with those and I eventually, my legs straightened up and I was fine. and. I was normal. Um, but I think that was something in there about adversity from a young age and not that I have any recollection of it, but I think something's in there DNA wise. Um, and then from that growing up in the countryside, growing up in the countryside. And if I wanted to see my mates, if I wanted to go to the shop, I'd have to cycle a long way. I'd have to run a long way. Um, and so fitness and generally being outdoors was, a norm you know that it wasn't just sitting in, indoors or just driving everywhere or you know it was always 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 that and then initially it was skiing skiing was my love if you have friends of meet meet friends of mine from school i'm a skier really um i was racing very young and joined the under 19 snow sports england ski team young and i loved it and it was my big goal to be at the olympics um definitely hard to be at the olympics as a skier when you're when you're a brit um AKA no snow. Um, but I, I got through that, um, period of my life because I had sport at the center of everything. And I found education school harder than most maybe it's because I'm a, I'm an August baby. So I'm potentially you know, nearly a year younger than a lot of others. I was dyslexic as well. So I think there was a little bit of struggle and from that came my love of sport and ultimately skipped forward several years. I traded in skiing for running, started to compete, started to have some opportunities with some sponsors. And then I went off and did these bigger things. So that's, that's in a nutshell where everything began. And I want to talk about some of those bigger things in a moment, but I want to pick up on something you just said there, which is interesting. And this is a, this is a loose analogy to draw, but it sprang into my mind as you were speaking, right? So I read Maybe it was Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, one of those sleep books a few years back. And there are scientists who are amazing, right? I recommend it constantly on this podcast but there are there are scientists who now believe that sleep is in a sense our natural state in as much as because there's so much going on in the body sleep is the natural state and wake is the kind of inconvenient state where you have to go and get food you said it's harder to not be doing these challenges and i've recently started running maybe four months ago and as everybody does the first couple of months couch to 5k absolutely impossible right it's a slog it's awful it's horrible but as you do like 10k 15k whatever it is and you continue moving, it almost feels like running, like moving is the natural state, right? The mental clarity, the, the ability to just keep moving when you don't think you can. Do you think that actually you have it right? And most people have it wrong in as much as I don't mean that in a judgmental way, but like we all sit here in our offices all day, not moving completely different to how we've lived for hundreds of thousands of years. Do you think that people are missing out on the fact that actually when you get moving, you realize that that is the natural state? Well, you know, to put it bluntly, absolutely yes. Uh, I, I, 
fundamentally think that your you know the sleep element is right you know we spend a lot of our time sleeping uh, our ancestors and and if anybody's read and i'm sure they have read uh, christopher mcdougall's born to run you know that touches on the essence of how we would hunt for our food and and how running was such a big part and being outdoors on our feet uh moving for substantial amounts of time you're talking eight ten hours a day if not more when most of the time now it's the opposite we're sitting down we're you're getting bad backs where everything in our body's kind of depreciating as we as we evolve as a species because we're behind a desk we might be you know evolving in other ways but certainly physical movement we're not very good at over the last i don't know maybe in my lifetime there's been a rise of of attention to physical activity and i think that's great um but running at the at the essence of it is is so peaceful to me and and part of that i believe is because it's fundamentally innate within all of us um and if you can just go through that initial kind of reversing the few centuries of um people sitting behind desks um we can then get back to what's really not so long ago in our history when we were not behind laptops not behind desks not sitting in vehicles um, and thinking, you know, horse and carts, we were on horseback or we were walking or, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I am sure that anybody listening to this has done any running of any form in their life will know that there is a certain blissfulness at some point or another during those runs. And of course, there are those tough moments, <laughs> a lot of tough moments. And I've had a fair share of those, you know, beginning running and and when things get really tough on the longer longer events. but. Generally, it is running is a a blissful state of being. Let's talk about one of those longer events because the the origin story of running a marathon in every country in the world, I think, has two interesting start points. Because of course, there's the start point where you have the idea, and that's all well and good, right? Like we all have crazy ideas. Very few people follow through with the ideas. So, when did you first? think of doing this like where did this seed come from talk to me about that but then perhaps more interestingly talk to me about the moment when you realize like shit i'm actually doing this this is going to happen <laughs> yeah that was quite scary um so i suppose the when i actually thought about doing it is in is a couple of answers actually i from a very young age i made a list uh on a piece of paper that was has lived in an envelope ever since and it's just all the kind of what ifs you know, what if I could do anything kind of list. Uh, I was probably about 15 or 16 when I wrote it. And it was, I was with mates, not and brother and not really thinking much about it. You know, things like skydive, swim with dolphins, have a baked bean bath, you know, <laughs> silly, silly things, kind of ambitious things. And obviously it would be, oh, wouldn't it be cool to visit every country in the world? And then tagged along to the side of that as, oh, wouldn't it be great to run a marathon in every country in the world? Because I love running. and. And so that, you know, you just write it down and you do a few things and it's it's put away, you don't think about it. But then that came back into my mind when um and the story goes, I was I was in the Sahara Desert running um uh the Marathon de Saab MDS um many years ago now. And in that desert, one of the competitors was if anybody doesn't know, that desert race is, is seven days in the in the Sahara, marathon, 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 double marathon, day off, marathon, marathon. You're doing a lot, of, a lot of running in the sand. A thousand people take part every year. And uh, and one of those competitors that was there with me in my tent was a guy called Kev. He was about 50 at the time. Um, and we were chatting. 
And most people racing those kind of events are unique in their own way. They're there for a reason. And he was there because, very sadly, he was dying. He had terminal prostate cancer. And he gave me the very profound message over the course of a day or two of, you know, you really have to go out and do what you absolutely love because time is unfathomably short. And I was already living that belief, but he cemented that for me with his words. And it just couldn't escape my mind that I needed to do something more than I was doing, even though by that point I'd already given up my job to be a runner, which is not really a job, let's face it. Um, and I, I thought, well, yeah, maybe he's right. Maybe I haven't thought big enough. Maybe there is something I can do. And so with a little bit of kind of trying to kill two birds with one stone, I thought, right, well, what can I do to live by his, his counsel? And what can I do to raise some money to help his, his cancer and, and trying to raise the awareness that, that prostate cancer needs talking about more? And that's another message for anyone listening to this is prostate cancer kills like 12,000 men every year. And it's, it's one of those cancers that the science has been done. And if you just check it, check yourself early, if you're over 40, check yourself early um, because it can save your life. Um, and so anyway, I wanted to do something for, for prostate cancer, went home a few weeks later. I I thought, oh, wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't it be cool to do a big running thing around the world? Maybe go to every continent or maybe run through Africa or and I thought, oh, I wonder what I could do. And then I just thought, well, what about every country? And I was a mad decision of let's give it a go. So my dog's uh, scratching herself. Good girl. Um, wouldn't it be uh wouldn't it be good to do that? And then within a couple of I'd say 20 minutes to an hour, no more, that idea had kind of taken hold and it it was happening in my mind. And I had no idea what I was doing. I sat my parents down and I said, you know, I'm going to run a marathon in every country in the world. And they said to me, well, how many countries are there? And I said, no idea. <laughs> no idea how many countries there are, but I'm going to do this. Um, and they know, as well as many of my close friends, and I think lots of people that have read my books now know that if I, if I get to that point where I've made a decision on something, it's happening. Um, and I won't verbalize it until I'm, you know, mentally I've gone through the, the checklist of, of very basic things. So anyway, that happened. The second part of your question is, you know, when is, when is it actually happening? And the, the kind of realization was when I, I touched down in, uh, in Toronto, in Canada, um, January the 6th, 2018, January 7th, by the time I landed. Uh, and that was my first country of the 196 and of, of this two-year mission. It took me two years to get to that start line of planning this thing. And then all of a sudden, I landed in Toronto. It was minus 25 degrees C. I was way out of my comfort zone. And I had that memory of, actually, I haven't done any proper running for about eight months, um, which was <laughs> ridiculous to do that. Um, but I got there and and all of a sudden, I knew that we just had to plot out the plot out the steps and and complete the mission and two years later we did do you remember the first step do you do you, can you actually go back to the moment where you put your left foot in front of your right or right in front of left and you're like okay this is it vividly absolutely vividly um i was with a bunch of people outside it was uh, the one king west hotel on young street in toronto it was snowing bitterly cold and I had a couple of reporters there and a couple of runners that from the local club that had come out to run with me before they then go off to work, you know, an hour into the run. Um, no idea where I was running. I was just getting my watches on and, and start running. 
Um, had both my watches to appease any record guidelines and push start on both of those watches. And uh, it's my right foot first, and we ran towards the towards the lake, and uh, and the rest was history, I suppose. Yeah, it was it was a very surreal feeling of, oh, this is happening, and no idea what's going to be around the corner, but also very aware that all I had to do was put one foot in front of the other. Um, and I don't think I would have got to that point if I hadn't had that cemented in my head. You know, I've done before that point, there was what, four or 500 marathons behind me. So I've done a fair amount of running to that point. You say that you just had to put one foot in front of the other. And that was my kind of perception of what this challenge was before I really dove into it. Right. But between you and the team, like the logistics are insane, right? I did not appreciate this until I started looking into this project of yours that even just traveling to 196 countries, let alone doing it on a schedule, let alone doing it with visas and, you know, injuries and movements and this and that, like, talk to me about that. How, how big a challenge was it to just even get to the countries, let alone run the marathons in them? Yeah. And if, if, if I'm honest, I think if I knew even just a fraction of the amount, and I'm not exaggerating here, if I knew even maybe 20% of the amount of logistical efforts, finances, the, the the trials that we would have to overcome just logistically, forgetting about the running, just logistically to make this thing happen, I would not have even started because it is terrifying. And even just going back and reading a few of the things, because much of the stuff I have to be reminded <laughs> that happened because it was such a blur. Um, and I, it was horrendous. You know, we we filled up nine passports. We thought we would spend about a hundred thousand pounds. We spent about a million. We thought we would get on 120 flights. We got on 455 flights. We had 60-odd bribes to pay. We spent tens of thousands of pounds in cancellations of flights, of transport changes. I was bitten by dogs. I was uh, mugged at gunpoint and at knife point. I had a heart attack. I had 22 bouts of food poisoning. All of these things physically are tough, naturally. But actually, then logistically, what you have to go through to get from country to country, running three marathons in three different countries each week, every week for nearly 100 weeks, it was just bonkers. Um, And honestly, starting out on Young Street in Toronto, Canada, January the 6th, 18, I had no idea that that was all going to be ahead of me. Um, And so I wasn't that scared. All I was worried about was not slipping over on the ice. And it was as simple as that. Ignorance is bliss. With that in mind, then, this is a weird question, but it just popped into my head. Imagine the word running wasn't in the dictionary, right? And you had to summarize that challenge, everything you did across those two years, as something which encapsulates everything which happened. And we can't use the word running. What was that challenge? Unrelenting. I think that would be the best word. And I don't want to use the word resilience, because if I'm honest, a lot, I wasn't that resilient <laughs> for a lot of it. I was... I was miserable, I was stressed, I was worried, I was in pain. But it was just have that unrelenting effort versus the unrelenting barriers. And I think it's similar what many people go through over a lifespan of just trials and tribulations. You lose relationships, your finances are good, your finances are bad. You kind of just have to ride that wave. And I really felt like I, I just had to keep going. Um, so I, I think unrelenting is the best word adventure perhaps, or misadventure, which is probably more apt. 
Um, although I believe you can't really have true adventure without lots of misadventure, because that's 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 the the definition, I suppose. Um, yeah, running really was my transport, but that wasn't what summed up the mission. And so, on this theme of having to find that resilience, and sometimes not being able to find it, perhaps in the quantities that you would have hoped, I'm sure there would have been moments where you were either through reality or just through the, the tricks that your mind was playing on you in those conditions, you were convinced that this is it, it's over, it's not going to happen, we failed, we may as well pack up and go home. When I say those words, does your mind go back to a particular situation? Yes. It makes me, it instantly gives me goosebumps, it makes me quite emotional, because the first emotion that, when you said that, that I feel is anger. And that is because I was on a phone, I was in one of the Pacific Islands, I can't remember where, and I was on the phone to my dad and we'd had multiple, multiple cases up to this point. And we were on, so the whole trip was 674 days. This must have been day 620, 630, something like that. And the phone call came in and this has been a problem that we've been trying to solve for a long time. Um, and this is in the, the kind of tail end of the Running the World book. And I, I had the call. It's hard to talk about it because it was so... It, it, it was just heart-wrenching to hear the words from my dad saying, look, we can't get you in to Syria. We can't, we don't have the visa for Iran. We don't know how we're going to get you into Yemen. Um, and then several weeks after that, we had another phone call when my driver that was supposed to be taking me into Syria um, was, was shot and killed, um, taking somebody else through there. And I, we had to, to make another decision. So, all of these, anyway, that's just two moments right towards the end. We've had so much that's building up to that point. And I really felt like my luck had run out by that phone call and that we really can't do this. And I started to think about, right, no, this was the mission at every country in the world. And, and I was thinking about the press interviews afterwards of, yeah, I ran, ran a marathon in every country in the world apart from one or apart from two. It doesn't, it doesn't sit well. Um, and I remember hanging up on my dad and I was really, really angry with myself and we had to make a decision of what we were doing. And I still had marathons to run in all these other countries and had to just keep going with some blind faith. And with thanks largely, I would say 80% my parents, 20% the rest of the team, um, especially my, my brilliant assistant at the time, Veton, they made everything possible. Um, and it was just through constant unrelenting once again effort behind the laptop behind the computer bearing in mind my parents were in their late 60s at this point and you know not particularly computer literate but they were making it happen from the, the back end so i owe them and the rest of the team a, a great deal and as you've probably seen in the books and prayers of the podcast lots of very interesting serendipitous moments that that made things happen um and if you see Olympians stand up on the stage and say, you know, well, you know, how do you think you got here? Aren't you great? And and their answer was actually, no, it was a lot of luck. <laughs> that is exactly how I feel about how we got to the end of running the world. It was a lot of effort, but we had to have that combination of luck as well. Not to mention the fact that within weeks of finishing, COVID happened. So um, that's, yeah, we were very lucky. And so with the combination of luck and effort and determination, how do you go about getting into those countries, Syria, Yemen, Iran, these countries that, I mean, obviously I wouldn't know where to begin, but taking a crew of people there to run around a street, which is, you know, in some way yeah. uh, compromised, how do you get in? 
Well, generally, well, remember, I was traveling on my own. So I was always on my own. And every country I would be running with lots of people, but they would be from you know, in-country nationals or, or tourists and, and various people. Um, so traveling on my own was another another issue because I had to you know, make decisions without having you know, other people to bounce the ideas off. To answer your question about getting into those places, most of the countries we had a fixer or somebody that uh, was on the ground with knowledge, whether it was a hotel receptionist in an easy country, let's say Nice, uh, in France, in Nice, easy peasy, but it's still good to have a, an understanding of what's going on. You know, are there protests going on in the area? Uh, are there road closures? Are there air traffic control strikes? Are there, you know, just somebody that will feed us information so we are a little less on the back foot? Um, and so to answer the question directly is we use those fixers, we paid them whatever they needed to be paid to organize transport, to organize safety, to organize routes, to organize visa stamps. And many places in Africa, it was a case of having another person with that person that could translate into different languages going across borders if we had to do a, an overland transport. Um, I remember once from Gambia into Senegal, we had a driver, but he didn't speak a certain dialect of one of the places we were going through so he 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 halved his money to give to his friend in order for us to be able to to articulate what we were doing with the multiple different um non-official checkpoints logs across roads things like that through african roads in order to be able to get through and without the language we wouldn't stand a chance so that's a, a, you know just a small example of one of the things we had to think about um and syria and yemen there's too much to say in one <laughs> one conversation, um, but there was an awful lot that we had to do. And when we had our driver that was then our fixer who then got killed, um, and it was just a case of, of, of research and of research and research. And thankfully, by that point, I, I wasn't doing this myself. And, and that's why I'm very keen to, to make a point that um, this wasn't my success. <laughs> this was a success of a lot of people. Um, and I, I started running even after those two years of planning, not knowing what, how I was going to get into 20, 25 countries. Um, but we started and we made it work by the end, the royal we. Have you come across Hardest Geezer? Hardest Geezer, no. So he is blowing up on the internet right now. He's attempting to, he's a YouTuber who does hard stuff, hence the name Hardest Geezer. I think he's from Brighton, ginger guy probably isn't faring well in the African sun right now. And he's attempting to be the first person to run from the south to the north of Africa. If you could be on the phone with him right now, what advice would you give him knowing everything you know about running in Africa and crossing land borders there? <laughs> well, I don't think I'd, I, he'd probably be able to give me advice. Um, I, know if, I know a number of people that have run north to south of Africa because I know he's not the first to do it. There's a, there's a bunch of people, some of friends of mine that have done it. Um, and it is tough and there's a reason why I haven't done it yet. <laughs> um, and it's because it's, it's particularly difficult. There's, there's dangers there that are, I, what I would call kind of soft dangers. Um, and as I write in the book, as, I mean, <laughs> obviously he's a, he's a ginger guy. I'm, I'm a, I'm a white guy running through a predominantly black um, continent and you have all eyes on you. And that feels like a, an incredibly, incredibly um, scary because you don't know whether you're about to run through the wrong place. For example, the Congo, you know, people have been shot just for wandering through the wrong neighborhood. 
Um, people have been kidnapped for virtually nothing in different places. And largely speaking, and I make a very big point on this in the book, that largely speaking, the whole world is full of fantastic, brilliant, kind, lovely people. And actually, some of the kindest people I've ever met have been through Africa. And yet there is a certain need and a certain lack of living without certain things that means that Africa is more dangerous and people are kind of on the edge more. And so there is a there is a sense that that stress when you are running, you have to try and bury it because that stress can cause you to sleep less, can cause everything in your body to work less well, inflammation increases, all this stuff. And you can then cause injuries and you, you, you trip over many problems. So I think, you know, if I could give one piece of advice, because I think he's got the rest covered with land borders and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it's just to, to really concentrate on accepting that although things feel scary, most of the time they're not. And I have a feeling by now he's, uh, he's experienced that and is completely aware of it. So I don't think that's a problem. Before we move on to the next challenge, um, a theme that I guess I picked up on whilst listening to other podcasts, reading bits and pieces here and there about this particular challenge is, and I've probably been guilty of it as well, people come back to the same questions about this, right? Because it's a big shiny challenge. It's the nice round number of all the countries and the running and la la la. What's something you wish somebody would have asked you about this challenge that they haven't yet? What's a story or a lesson from this particular challenge that just you haven't been able to vocalize because nobody's asked? Because nobody's asked me yet. Um, I think it's, I, I, I think it's something that I touched on throughout the entire running the world book, which is the broader sense of perspective and appreciating our place in the world. And there's so few people that have been to every country. Obviously, I'm the only one that's run in every marathon in every country. And I argue that visiting every country is the best education you can ever have. Um, you don't need to be able to add up or write your name to have a fundamental understanding of the world. And yet many people will leave school and higher education with PhDs, but have a very limited understanding of the broader concepts of the world. And so the stuff that I love to talk about with the world was how it gave me this immense inner calm within myself. Um, once I'd finished, obviously, because it was stressful up to that point. Um, but it was a case of, of really sitting back. And it's something that my mum's always said to me. And, you know, whenever I would be, you know, we always talk about you know, good and bad mental health, but I think mental health is, is definitely on a continuum and every, everybody experiences that. And when my mum was helping me through my teenage years of, of ups and downs, she would always say, it doesn't matter. Look at the bigger picture. It doesn't matter. Things don't matter. And I think that's what I learned through through running the world, it was my understanding that I have it good even on the worst possible day. And through that, it has, it has made my life happier every day since because I am stressing less. I am worrying less. If I've not got money to pay for things, it doesn't matter because ultimately I am in this enormous place of privilege where I have enough people around me. I have enough experience behind me to be able to get through those things. Um, and also, there's another element there of I've started my charity, the 196 Foundation, after this thing, and it has it has it has transformed into this this force of good, where we're getting people donating a couple of pound a month, one pound ninety six, obviously that special number one ninety six, um, into the pot every month, and then we we deliver a project anywhere in the world. We've just had a project 
that we're about to announce later today. So you're hearing it first, which is a project in Kenya, which is building a farm and a school. Um, and, and and so I want to talk more about those things. You know, when people talk to me about running the world, it's not just the hardships or how did I get into North Korea or what was my favorite country. It was the bigger picture and how profoundly this trip changed my life and thus is changing others through the charity. And so speaking about things that you didn't really get a chance to speak about, we were chatting just before we started recording about your trip to Italy. And you said something really interesting, which is that it could have been a book in and of itself, but it wasn't. So if your, if your nice, peaceful trip to Italy was a book, what would that book be about? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, the story goes, I finished running the world. Lots of stuff didn't particularly go to plan. COVID happened. I had all these brilliant ideas. Um, lots of expeditions that were planning and speaking to sponsors. And then all of a sudden the rug was pulled from us because COVID hit and the world closed down. And then several months, nearly a year later, Italy was open again. And I thought, right, here's my chance. Let's take the van. Let's take the dog and my girlfriend at the time. And we, the mission was run a hundred marathons in hundred, in a hundred days down you know, from the very top of the Austrian border, north of Italy, all the way down to Southern Sicily. and. um that's exactly what we did. But it was another big pivotal kind of um, philosophical bit of me that, you know, relationship was hard because we were in a foreign country during COVID, not breaking any rules, thankfully, because everything was happening to open up at the right time. Um, but there was so much stuff that went wrong from navigational stuff to being hit by a car to enormous rows with my then girlfriend who was incredibly supportive but we would it was just mentally brutal because I was used to traveling on my own I was used to doing these things on my own and then I was having living life in a little box on wheels which I'm still living out of at the moment of my van um with a newborn puppy in a foreign country running through horrendous storms you know, kind of golf ball size hail it was just Phenomenal. And of course, I got injured during that trip as well, which meant I then had to go and run double marathons towards the end. Um, and yet we got to the finish line and I finished that trip going, gosh, right. I'm putting that to the back of my mind. That was, that was bloody difficult. Um, because it was emotionally draining. The running was hard, but everything else. And then looking back on it, I, I have literally hundreds of thousands of photos of beautiful parts of Italy that were just emotionally kind of opaqued by by suffering <laughs> um so it, it was one of those it was one of those trips that i think i would well i am i'm writing another book which is about my journey to a hundred thousand miles um and that will be included in that in in that book in, in more detail um but it was a tough it was a tough journey and it was a very very key stepping stone to running, running Britain, running around Britain, um, because I'd taken a, a hundred marathons in a hundred days for Italy, and I wanted to do something similar around Britain, and I didn't want to run north to south of Britain, because, frankly, I didn't want to run up the middle of the country. I wanted to buy, be by the water. Water is the, my my peaceful place, and so I decided to to run around it. And then I realised how far it was, and I thought, gosh, I can't spend two hundred days doing this because I'd got things to do, frankly. I, I want to do it quicker. And so I thought, well, okay, well, let's try and do a double marathon a day for 100 days. Um, 
and uh, and Run Britain was born, and and that again was a big big platform to 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 further my career and my love of running. And we are we're here now with a with another another book. And I want to talk about that book and that journey in just a moment. But something that popped into my mind as you're speaking about some of the challenges from Italy, and I reflect on some of the challenges from the world, is I struggle to know how to word this. What do you feel in the moment like you get out of these huge challenges? Because to somebody who listens to you speak, right, you've listed off endless challenges, endless difficulties, endless, you know, relationship problems, injuries, food poisoning, illness, stress, all of these things, right, that most people would look at and just be like, I'm all right, you know, I'll just, I'll just pop to Weatherspoons on Saturday and that's me, I'm fine. You must be getting something huge and profound from it. How would you articulate what it is that you get? Yeah. And I think that's an incredibly good question. And it's a question that truthfully I can't answer in its entirety. I think there will always be a part of me that can't answer that fully. And when people say, oh, why do you do what you do? And my answer is because I love it, because I have this incredible privilege that so many people in the world don't have the opportunity to. There's so many people that haven't even left their own country. There's 1% of the world that have run a marathon, tiny percentage of the world. And I've done all of these marathons, visited all these incredible places. But you know, to answer that question of what I get out of it in the moment, I think it is, truthfully, I think it's a bit of escapism. I think it's bury myself. And I think David Goggins and I are similar in this way, and a lot of other people that do this kind of stuff, is you bury yourself in that moment and everything else just kind of fades to black. There isn't anything there that you're, that you're thinking about, worrying about. It's a very selfish place, but it's a very beautiful place as well you are just in that moment suffering through whatever hardship you're in and also let's face it life is lived through through moments of hardship if you just had the good points in life you you would be existing but not particularly living and thriving and it's just the same if if somebody wins the lottery and they have unlimited money they still end up putting themselves in positions where they have to experience adrenaline. They have to suffer. They have to get themselves out of it. And it comes back to our earlier conversation about kind of our innate human being uh, essence, which is that we've had to struggle for a long time to, to feed ourselves, to, to live. And I think there's so much of that DNA in us still, because really it's not that long ago um, that we were, we were living like that. And and maybe that's been bolstered a little bit more through world wars and all sorts of stuff. But I think it's in our DNA. I think it's that is why we do it. And that is why when I can I can firmly say doing these things is is where I need to be because it's it, it just feels right. Um, no matter how hard. Um yeah, suffering and, and, and going through hardships is is I think what makes us human. I think that actually links back even even more closely to that original point that we spoke about, because without getting too philosophical here, I wonder whether because so many people, myself included, aren't doing the things that you're doing right, even on a smaller scale, we're not pushing ourselves enough. It's not like we live without this suffering. It's not like we live without this look for escapism. We just look to entirely synthetic things, right? Like we all have escapism and we all have things that we deal with, but we deal with them in very artificial, very non- traditional for want of better word ways again do you have it right is it just stick your shoes on go outside move deal with what's in your mind listen to yourself is that is that a cheat code to life in some ways 
Yeah, and and I think there's I think there's a couple of categories that you can put that in. So kind of people that live indoors versus outdoors. I think that's 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 quite big there. Um, you can have a conventional job. Let's say you are, um, uh, an, I don't know, an IT analyst or something. You work in IT. You're indoors looking at a screen. A builder. You are most of the time outdoors. It's still a hard job. You are still putting similar effort in slightly different ways. You know, maybe you're straining your eyes if you're inside looking at a screen. And as a builder, you're you're maybe straining your muscles and 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 you're physically more active. But the life lived outdoors, from my experience of my time on the planet, people are happier in themselves when they are outdoors. And I think it, it comes right back to to that that fundamental, you know, innate stuff with the human beings. And then so that's one little category. The other category is then running you know sport and having that adrenaline and being able to hunt for food eating food repeating um the fact that we can just pop down to the supermarket and shops and buy food and shovel it in and uh, is obviously causing the whole planet especially certain parts of the world let's let's name america for one which is is kind of undoing this essence because everything's too easy so yeah to answer your question absolutely it's where we all should be be living more um, and it's why i'm trying to encourage as many people as possible not just to run but just to focus on what they love to do and i think they will then eventually come back to something being outdoors and something being rather wholesome and peaceful i've never been more happy than living out of a van with very few things living by the ocean running a lot um that says enough for me and that's exactly what you did next, right? You you took the van or a different van in this case. You went to the ocean and you got outdoors. Talk to me about this Run Britain challenge again. Where did this come from? What's it all about? Yeah, so circling back to Italy, we finished Italy. Um, were miserable as sin at the end of it because it was so stressful. Um, and as Italy was eventually closing its borders again because of the second bout of COVID, we we made a made a run for it, quite literally, to to whiz the van, turn the van around from Sicily and drive as far north as we could to go and spend a few months, what ended up being three or four months in the French Alps um, in an entirely locked down ski resort, which was utter bliss, to be honest. But in that time, I was plotting all these things that I'd wanted to do post running the world and couldn't because covid hit and i thought right well what can i finally do now and we were planning x y and z and we still couldn't get there because of covid um and eventually the news came that the british government was was opening up again and the country was free and we could run for more than an hour a day and we could run with other people and i thought right 17th of april is that date i think it was the 15th of april sorry is that date when when everything unlocked and Three or four weeks before then, I thought, wouldn't it be good then to run around Britain? And as I just mentioned, I didn't want to run north to south because it was either too short and I've done it before. I wanted to run around and I wanted to be near the ocean. And as I said, that's, that's and I've just read something a few days ago, a few weeks ago, in fact, about how being near bodies of water can bring you peace. And I always love being by the ocean. And so I thought, right, let's run around the country. And there was a, an, an essence of me as well. Of, a, I wanted to kind of unite the runners in Britain because we'd all been just stuck. And there's kind of been this running revolution where people could only run or exercise for an hour a day. So there was more people out there that would, could do it. And I thought, yeah, this is a good opportunity to bring people together. And also, I wanted to see the country because I felt rather silly that 
I'd been to every country, but I hadn't run around my own country yet. So let's go and tick that box. Now, Britain is actually bloody massive when you run around it. So doing two marathons a day, you know, five and a half thousand miles around the island, it's going to take some time. Um, I set my target of 100 days. Four weeks later, after dreaming that up, we'd finished, we'd come back from France and we were ready to drive a couple of vans down to St. Austell, the Eden Project, and we were going to run anti-clockwise around the country. I had trained virtually nothing. I, I, I mean, I'd done some running in the mountains. I'd done plenty of ski touring. Um, it was generally very foolish, let's put it that way, and that's definitely documented in the, in the Run Britain book. Um, but I eventually got to the start line, very good teammates, um, some some people there that were going to help me. We had two vans. And it was a case of with photographers, with some various different help, I would travel and run about 12 hours a day, two marathons a day for 100 days. It didn't quite work out like that. There was lots of things that went wrong. But just like with all the other bits, we suffered through and eventually crossed the line 28 days later than planned. But we finished it. We beat the record by the existing record by a, several hundred days. It was a, it was a, it was a slower record. And I, I was thin. I was basically a skeleton. There's a photo in the book of me looking incredibly thin. I was down to just under three percent body fat, and uh, and we made it. But the you know the, those 128 days was very again just like with all the other missions, very enriching because it brought me closer to a very good friend of mine of my was who was my right hand man on the mission, Andy, who also co-authored the book. His diary entries are in the book, so people can hear about what it's like from the other side. Um, and, it, and it wasn't just a case of some polite inclusion here of me asking Andy to write a few words. Uh, all right, Pops. Again, um, Andy needed to have a voice in the book because people don't understand how much pressure the team are under when somebody does something like this. Um, so he has a he's a very good, and it's funny as well, some of his bits in the book are hilarious because he was seeing me at my worst. and. Um, and he uh, he was less tired than me, so could remember them. <laughs> Something interesting about Andy's entries in the book is it gives this second perspective of, I don't want to say sanity, because that would be suggesting that what you were doing is insane. However, there's this kind of eternal optimism in your narration of what you've been doing, right? Although you talk about the hiccups, yes. Whereas Andy, almost from day one, is like, this is crazy. This has gone wrong. He hasn't considered this. And it's so interesting to hear almost i don't want to say the voice of the reader because he's not the reader right but he's he's almost thinking in real time what we're thinking it's, it's a really interesting addition yeah absolutely and there's there's a lot of moments there and i know andy is such a, a good friend and honestly uh, i feel so honored to have spent that time with him and, and as i write in the book very few people other than your partner or your family do you spend four months living in a box <laughs> Um, side by side, him literally feeding me every single meal, washing my clothes, washing my underwear and his bare hands in the sink, like cleaning out our little box. Like, you know, he was absolute rock to me and he made everything possible. And we bonded. But he was living a different mission than I was because I had to have that eternal optimism. And he had to be, even though if it was unspoken most of the time, this voice of reason and the voice of pragmatism to make sure things were, were moving forward um and where i would say oh yeah i'll just i'll run up here and i'll see you in 10 miles and i'll find the route he was you know he would say yes to me and yet he would then hop ahead and make sure that i was on the right route um 
that's just a tiny example of all, all of the many things. But he was he was just as much of this journey as I was. Um, he wasn't running much of it. He still did a lot of running with me. Um, but he was driving a, a very rickety small van around tiny little lanes on the on the coast of Britain. Something that comes across in the early pages of the book is that, you know, it, it ended up being a 128-day mission. It could have been an eight-day mission and still have been just as ridiculous and difficult, right? Those first few days genuinely sound just unbearable in so many ways as I'm driving down the road in my nice heated seated car listening to it. I'm like, Jesus. Um, but you say in those early pages that you get through those moments because you've managed to build this kind of mental fortress in your mind, right? That helps you overcome the physical and the mental difficulties. Talk to me about that. What is it? How do you get there? How do you build one of your own if you're listening to this and interested? Yeah. So again, being, I want to try and be completely transparent and as truthful as possible here is that you know, me referring to this as my mental fortress, it sounds very neat and tidy and uh, locked away that I've, you know, I've got this perfect system. It, it, there is no perfect system. Nobody that does any of this stuff, including David Goggins, has a perfect system. But we just have methods and a format to follow, and we try and stick to it as much as possible. My mental fortress was a case of building a few parameters that were in place. For example, in Run Britain, I would always start six o'clock on the dot in the morning. And as the as the reader goes through, I won't spoil it, but as the reader goes through the book, you can see how my mental uh, mentality towards that hard start changes. Um, but having that basic format and some real key bits in my life, because all I was doing was running for 12 hours a day. I was eating as much as I possibly could trying not to, frankly, shit myself too much because that happened, uh, as you can read in the book, rather a lot. Um, and I was going to bed, sleeping as much as I could, as quickly as I could, and repeating for four months with very little anything else. And so this mental fortress was about putting key markers, key flags in my day, in my life, that I could cling to. The start points, the finish points, the midpoint, my feeding times. Um, there was no set way I would look at this fortress I wouldn't go right I need to need to get into this mental state it was just a case of constant being to protect myself from pain from doubt specifically doubt because you have a lot of doubt when you get injured on day six when you've got months to keep running for um and what you referred to then about the the, the beginning bit of the book there's a big chapter in the book the beginning chapter of just the first week and and it's because so much was going wrong. And when you do something like this, it's always going to be the beginning days that are hard. And that's when you need to fall back on your on your mental mental fortress. So I think if anyone's listening to this and they want to try and harbor something similar, my only advice that's any decent, any good really, is to is to at least create a format of which you can deal with things in. Um so for example, if people want to you know, go to the gym every morning or go for a run every morning. Just give yourself a little bit of a framework to make it possible. You know, help yourself out. Put your clothes out the night before. Set a few alarms. Make sure that you sleep with the window open so you wake up with the sun, the blind open, for example. Like little things that you can put in place. And so that's all I was doing to help the, the lack of doubt, to help the lack of pain. Um, just try and give you some, some framework to work with, yeah. 
It's interesting to hear you speak about that in reality, right? Because there are, for example, David Goggins, you say that you don't have the same military background as him, but one of the things that he takes and everyone takes from military training, it seems in these books that we read, is that focus on discipline and consistency and things just being the same every day to allow you to then think bigger, right? We look at books like The Slight Edge, um, Atomic Habits, they all tell you to do these things. And it's very easy for someone like me, right? Where it's like, oh, on my spreadsheet of things to do today, I'm going to wake up at half seven. I'm going to not have caffeine after 2 p.m. But to hear it out on the road, literally working, keeping you going mile after mile is so interesting because it is just that, that unshakable testimonial that this stuff works. Yes, you're absolutely right. And that's very eloquent of you because it does work. And if as soon as you... So, for example, I have had a few friends and people that I, I coach uh, and random people that have messaged me on social media or whatever. They say, oh, I want to get into running. What do I do? And my advice is always the same. If you want to get into running, actually want to get into running. So, first of all, you have to kind of actually ask yourself a question of, do you really want to get into running? Because a lot of people want to for the wrong reasons. For example, their mates are or because they think they should. You know, if you truly want to get into running, then you will. Um, which is a big, big part of it. But once, you, once you're there, my advice to them is run every day for 30 days. And people go, whoa, 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 that's mental. But I'm not asking people to run hundreds of miles every day. I'm asking people to run a couple of hundred meters, a kilometer. Just get your gear on and get into the habit. And, and that habit forming and that discipline of having a horrible day at work, you get back, maybe you've got a party to go to, maybe you've got to go and go to the vets or something. And it gets to 10 p.m. and you go, I haven't done my run today. Get your shoes on, go out, run around the block, come back, take them off, have a shower. You've done your run. So it's a case of just, and that's a lot of stuff that I do now, even when I have to get back into some training, is just to go, right, every single day at the same time, I'm going to get out and I'm going to run. Doesn't matter how far, doesn't matter how fast, just get into the habit. And a good example of that, a very good friend of mine, I, he said, he asked me the same question. I gave him the same advice and he took that advice and he stuck to it and he's now on day, I don't know, 220 something. He's just been running every single day. He's entering races where he never ran races before. He's got all the kit. He's completely immersed in the running world. And it all started from discipline, from getting up day two, day three, day four. Um, and it's the same if you're not a runner as well. It's the same with work. It's the same with my to-do list that I have today. I will make myself some firm things that I will do before I sleep. And there'll be a list of things that I might get to. But it's just being really clear with yourself and, and, and setting those goals. So, and I'm very great. I don't know where I get that from in terms of discipline, but I'm very grateful for it because it, it has enabled me to achieve certain things that I think otherwise would have maybe taken me longer or I would have just given up. Do you struggle in some ways then with days like today, more than days where you have to do two marathons back to back? Because, you know, you've got this, this annoying guy who wants to do his podcast and then the PR guy might email you and say, how did it go? And you're not in a lay by right now. And there's this and that, like, does this, this kind of comfort, but the trade-off of comfort being a lack of consistency, does this hurt in a way? Spot on. I, I don't think it would, I don't say it would hurt, but it is, it is harder. Um, getting up and yeah, bizarrely, getting up at 5.50 and running at six o'clock every day for four months, double marathons, was in many ways mentally, well, not mentally, entirely easier than this life I am now where I'm not doing it because there wasn't any question. Because if I didn't get up at that point, the mission would fail. Um, it, was, it was very easy at the moment. If I don't do some things on my to-do list, then you, somebody can very easily look at it and go, oh, well, I'll do it tomorrow. But I've tried desperately 
to keep that same mindset of if I don't do these things, then the goal, which is at the end, which may be three or four months from now, won't be hit. And I think CEOs, people in business that succeed have that same mindset of just having one eye on the impact of not doing these things. Um, and so I really try and be consistent. But equally, I think a message to everybody is to to constantly have a, a foot off the gas moment. So intend to not put pressure on yourself for, I don't know, two days a week, aka a weekend when you work for yourself, you don't really have a weekend. Um, but or just in life, you know, go right. Well, and for me, it's always the month of August. For the month of August, I have my downtime. Month of August, I work less. I look at my laptop less. I check my emails less. I do less interviews. Um, and I might even run more. Um, but it's having, you know, it's having that, that kind of discipline and being okay to, 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 be, to have the flexibility, but still live within the framework that you're setting yourself. Um, and the hardest part, just like trying to get into anything, is, is finding what framework works, being as flexible as you need to be without, without kind of falling off the wagon. Um, and one final thing I'll say on that with running, with the people that I coach, we have a, a very strict formula, which is we have a, a week to focus on endurance. We have a week to focus on speed and tempo work. And then we have a week to focus on recovery. And that recovery week is a, is a week. Every third week is a week off. Effectively, you are recovering. You're still running a bit. You're still doing some yoga or some stretching or mobility work, but you're not, you're not in this cycle. So you have an opportunity to get out. So you don't, you don't have this horrible vision of this is never ending. You have a break. Um, and that is quite important in, in training, I think, and life. So as we come towards a close, I want to zoom out again and kind of pull out some of the lessons that this whole thing so far has taught you. And where I want to begin is, is an interesting place, I think, because by definition, every marathon is the same length, right? And so this, this length of marathon always becomes this vessel of stories and emotions and feelings and doubts and euphoria and all the good things as well. So with that in mind, what has felt like your shortest marathon? i.e. your easiest perhaps, and what has felt like your longest marathon? Gosh, some, and I'm not exaggerating here, shortest marathons, I would say I've had 100, 150 marathons where they have truly felt like a 5K and maybe an 8K. Let's, you know, try and be as realistic as I can. And I'm not exaggerating there. When you get into a happy rhythm, generally it is two-thirds of the way through a particular type of mission. Um, so like running Italy, running the world, run Britain. Once you get to a certain point, they become uh, second nature. You feel great. You don't really think about them. And before you know, you know, there's many times where I've got to the marathon distance and not noticed because I've just been happy. I've been in the zone. I, everything's fine. So they're, they're the ones that that feel short. Um, the one that comes to mind actually is is Nice. Um, during running the world and I have no idea how long it took me at all, but it felt like I just went out for a quick jog and got it done and came home. And that was because I was in that easy rhythm. So, um, yeah. And I can't, don't think I can answer. I don't think I can pick one specifically. That's as close as I can get for that one. The longest one, um, naturally they're the hardest ones. They're the ones that suffer the most, um, you know, breaking my ankle in the Sahara. That was a, a brutally long, brutally long mentally and literally, um, horrible run um, running with food poisoning and throwing up 25 times 26 times across a 26 mile run in Bangladesh um, in crazy hot humid and uh, that was tough um, 
the the longest one other than that i think is when i during run britain when i was on day six when you know double marathon in and a 19 hour day broken bones um flipped meniscus just in pain um and it was it, it was longest in time and the longest in, in my mind it felt like weeks um uh, and in contrast i was running with with sean conway the other day who's 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 approaching his 102 uh, Ironman in 102 days, which is just unbelievable. And I've got huge respect and admiration for him. He, uh, I ran with him and I was very aware when I was running with him, he was what day 78, I ran with him. He was 78 days into this mission and a marathon after doing all of these swimming and cycling and, you know, 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, then a marathon. And I rocked up fresh as a daisy, only doing one and chatting away with him. It felt like I was running with him for about 25 minutes. And yet it was several hours, you know, four or five hours that we were running together. And it must have felt incredibly long for him, but not for me. And that's all perceived in the mind. And, and it's just a big reminder to me. And I, it was a real kind of wake up moment when I was running with Sean that all of these things I've gone through is all perceived in here. Um, your body is still doing the same thing. And you can make whatever you make of it. And so let's talk about that perception, right? Let's let's rewind 1,015 marathons. You're at the start line of whatever your first marathon was, and you're a different person then, in some ways, at least compared to who you are today, right? What is the most important lesson you've learned about yourself in all of that time and in all of those miles? There's a lot I've learned about myself from one angle. Me being a, an athlete, a runner, an adventurer, whatever you want to call it, uh, has taught me that I innately am, A, quite selfish, which is often perceived as a bad thing. And in many walks of life, it is. But in certain walks of life and in internal success, it is quite important to have that balance. And so I would argue that understanding the balance of being selfish or selfless is an art. And I think it takes quite a long time as an adult to form that right, uh, the, the right balance of that, because I want to be selfless in my life, in my relationships, but I need to be selfish in my career and I need to be disciplined with what I do because otherwise I'll A, not be true to myself, but I also won't achieve what I want to achieve. So I think some people out there are maybe too nice, too selfless, maybe don't put themselves first. And they also don't understand that in order to achieve certain things, it's okay to be selfish as long as you're not harming other people. Um, so that is a big lesson that maybe you weren't expecting me to say, but it is something that's that's been very profound in um, in my running stuff and has, has taught me since I started running. Um, other than that, it comes back to the bigger picture of the of my place in the world. And I've learned, you know, my, as I'm sure many parents say to many kids, you don't know how lucky you are. We are so lucky. You're so privileged, you know, you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I used to always get that as a kid. And the, the realization is that I was so much more lucky than I, I could ever realize. And I'm so much more lucky now than I truly realize because the basics are being covered when so many people out in the world aren't having their basics met. And, you know, you're talking food, water, shelter, but I've also got opportunities and I have opportunities because of the position I'm in when so many people don't. 
you know, of all those people that haven't been to another country. It's not because they don't want to, because they don't have the opportunity to. And so I think it's one is the selfish, selfless thing. One is my perspective on the whole world. And the final thing is about the gratitude I have for the opportunities that I've been given and have been you know, making for myself through through those practices like the, the mental fortress and, and the form, you know, having a format for life. So it's not perfect, um, but running has certainly made me a and you kind of touched on your answer there, the, the contrast that you have been afforded through running and visiting every country in the world, through running every inch of the edge of this island of ours, right? What have you learned about other people in doing that? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly profound, the amount of people that are so wonderful um, and how everybody is experiencing. So everybody's different. We understand every human being is different. We never have the, you know, nobody's exactly the same. And yet we are all forever and will always be experiencing the same range of emotions. Um, everything is on a sliding scale. You're, whether you're hungry, whether you are happy, whether you are angry, all of these things are on a sliding scale all the time. And we're always moving them left to right, depending on, on, on what we're doing. But as human beings, those, those different parameters, they don't change for different people. We just experience them in different ways. And I've learned that most people are happier and kinder and more selfless than we perceive. And I think that's largely down to media because we only see stuff that's going wrong and maybe the celebrating successes bit isn't done enough. And I think we're in a little bit of a, maybe microcosm is not the right word, but we are in a, in a vacuum of miserable media, as I call it, where we are just being fed the rubbish stuff. And actually, if we if we had another... Or, you know, let's say we had two TVs on the wall and let's say we turn the TV on with only the good stuff happening, we would all realise quite how wonderful the world is and we would stop looking at the bad stuff. So for that reason, I don't have my news alerts on anymore. I have alerts that give me updates on who's who's been winning in certain sports things. I, I don't have much interest in the other stuff. And I'm not saying I ignore it because of the charity. We're doing loads of other stuff. But there's so much good that's being done. Um, there's a brilliant book called, uh, you've probably read it, Factfulness by Hans Roslin, um, which is all about the, you should read it if you haven't, it's a stunning book. It's about just how well we have progressed as, as a species and, and, and how brilliant we have this world. It's acknowledging everything that we need to do. For example, there's 2 million children in the world that die of starvation every year, which is just outrageous. But if you look at the numbers of what it was before and how much you know, uh, young girls in, um, are in school, we're just living in the best time we've ever had. And yet there is still so much more to do. So I think that's answered your question. It did. It did. And I, I want to end here, right? So you just said that we all have the same range of emotions, like deep down somewhere, we're all kind of the same, right? We all want the same things. We all run, no pun intended, from the same things and so on. And yet somebody may have been listening to us chat for the last hour and they say, you know, this, this Nick guy, he's inspiring, but I'm not the same as him. I can't do the things he's done. I can't go to the places he's gone to, right? I just don't have it in me. But you've evidently learned a lot about yourself, right? About the challenges, the ups and downs. And from that, you've taken a bunch of lessons. So if we can at least for just a moment plant the belief into whoever's listening that actually fundamentally they are the same as you because we're all the same. What lessons from everything you have done would you leave them with just before we finish? Yeah, yeah. I'd like to just, just 
just copy back from what you've just said though I, I did a talk a couple of years ago and and i took some questions at the end and a, a lady put her hand up and said um you know what what advice would you give us normal folk you know you know we know that you're you and i said whoa whoa, whoa. i'm exactly the same as you yeah i'm i'm living we re- i'm truly i'm just another human being i'm just maybe approaching things slightly differently um so and i had this question about kind of you know what would i implore other employ other people to do is a give yourself some slack we're all very stressed generally for things that don't matter it's coming back to that that you know that message that my mum's always given me is things don't really matter and the world certainly taught me that we can take our foot off and then contrasting to that it's about valuing our time I, and i and i talk about this in run britain quite heavily if we can combine Valuing our time with living in a kind world and doing kind things as that you know, famous, famous way to live, which is the, the three golden rules, which is be kind, be kind and be kind. Um, if you can be kind and if you can appreciate the value of your time, then we're going to be living in a happier world. So I have you know, I'm speaking to you because I value what you do. I appreciate how this will benefit us mutually and other people. And I've taken a you know, a snapshot, immediate, general response to the value that we're both going to be getting here. And so it, it links back with this selfless, selfish element. If people can step back and go, I need to value myself, I need to be kind in the world and appreciate the short amount of time that I have, it will suddenly give a little bit of a rocket up the backside of people to say, look, we only live for on average in Britain, around 81 years old is our, is the average age, uh, average life expectancy. Um, it's very easy to get quite close to that without fulfilling your dreams because you feel like you've got unlimited time uh, and you don't. Yet you don't need to rush at it. You just need to, to get there hastily, if that makes sense. So you can, there's this, I mean, there's, there's poetry, there's writings about this, but it's really profound to me that, we have a, such a short point on the time on this planet, and yet we still have time each day to do what we love, to be kind, and to value what we're giving to other people. So um, it's a bit of a messy answer because it's not, you know, life is not not straightforward. But valuing our time and being kind to others, um, and maybe taking your, you're taking your foot off your own neck sometimes when things start to get a bit stressful is a is a good way to be amazing nick i've enjoyed this so much i'm so glad that this was both about running but also in no way about running right this is about life i'm going to make sure that yeah. both your books are linked in the show notes below for people to go and grab them and read them and I, I recommend they do they're crazy in every way i don't i don't actually normally hype books myself when i finish a conversation but it's just the craziest thing so i do recommend everybody reads them because they're not about running right um if people want to go elsewhere to find your stuff where can they go yeah, thank you. And just a message to say thank you to you, Sean. I think, you know, it's great to have the opportunity and the platform to speak about these things. So don't underestimate uh, the power of what you do. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, and for everybody listening, because if nobody's listening, then we wouldn't be having the chat. So um, thank you for listening as well. Um, where, where can people go? Um, my website or my Instagram. So if you just search my name, Nick Butter or Nick Butter Run, which is a lot of my social media handles. You'll see what I do. Um, I'm also just about to launch um, Run Weekends, which is running retreats all over the world that I'm leading. So very running the world style, taking people to far-flung places and and doing a few runs and having a good time. Um, And also, very importantly, my foundation, if anybody can afford £1.96 a month, less than £24 a year, 
We put all that money into a pot and all the donors then vote on which project we help anywhere in the world. And to be clear on that, it doesn't have to be any particular thing that we're doing. We get people come to us. Last year, we developed a machine in Nepal that was delivering affordable sanitary products to girls in schools. This year, we're building a farm and a school in Kenya. Um, there's loads of other stuff that we're doing. But and again, if you want to be involved with my future expeditions, if you want to come and run with me, then just drop me an email. My uh, All my information is on the website, nickbutter.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free warbyparker.com slash covered. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.